And thank you very much. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Actually, chapter 10 is our first of our text today, going through part of chapter 11. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We're working our way through this great book, and we're coming close to the end now. So uh, Solomon is picking up some loose ends and pulling it all together as we come to these chapters. Join me in prayer. Father, we come before you now looking at a very intense book of Scripture, one that sometimes perplexes us, and yet there are great jewels of truth and wisdom found throughout. And I pray that even today, Lord, that we will be able to glean some of those, apply them to our lives, and live wisely before you and to your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I've read a lot of books. I go to a lot of bookstores, and I have noticed, as you have at the bookstores, there's a whole sections of how-to books, uh, how to sew, how to quilt, how to a garden, how to play tennis, whatever you want. And uh, there are also this whole series that's come out in recent years for dummies. Some of us relate to that. Uh, you know, how, how, to, how to play chess for dummies, how to, how to do theology for dummies, how to do this, that, or other for dummies. And almost every, every conceivable idea is out there. You know, one of the things I have not seen, though, and I actually looked this up just in case I was wrong, but I've never seen a book titled How to Become a Dummy, okay, <laughs> or How to Be Stupid. Or, or how to waste your life. Now, there's probably a book out there out somewhere. Somebody might write it soon, but I have never seen those books. That's not something most of us want to be, is uh, perpetual dummies. We don't want to waste our lives. And yet, according to God's Word, most people do. The vast majority of humanity spends their life as living in foolishness, living going the wrong directions, and living uh, in such a way that we can be outlined as those who live in folly and living as stupid people by God's definition of that. Paul, uh, Solomon calls that insanity back in chapter 9, living insanely instead of living wisely. And on top of that, we live condemned lives because if we're not walking with God, if we don't know God, if He's not our Savior, we're under the judgment of God. And we're under the judgment of God because of sin. And ultimately, we will face that judgment because of our life. And if you ask most people, if you ask almost anybody, do you want to live wisely? Almost anybody would say, yes, I want to be wise. I want to live wisely. And yet most people do not. The scriptures encourage us to live with wisdom, don't they? Uh, all the way through the Bible, but especially in Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and that kind of literature, we have this constant push towards wisdom, living a wise life. And so we want to do that. And if we do so, it'll be a life that honors God a life that glorifies Him, because that's the essence of living wisely. It's not just a good platitudes and proverbs. It's living according to His glory. And it's also going to be a life, and this is what Solomon wants to talk about today, it's going to be a life that will be an advantage for us to, to live wisely before the Lord and for the Lord results in definite advantages in living life right here on this planet. And that is what he's talking about in the passage we're looking at today, some of the advantages of living a wise life. I have in your notes uh, five advantages in here, but when I looked at my notes again, I got six. So that's called creative math or new math or something, uh, just a bonus section. So we'll get you six before we're done. But look at the advantages of living wisely. And each of these areas that he's talking about are areas that uh, perplex us, areas that we ponder, uh, areas that uh, sometimes very much aggravate us. So what is God's wisdom 
in regard to these areas. So let's start off with, with the first one that lays the foundation, and that is, if we're living wisely, we'll be traveling on the right path of life. We'll be traveling on the right path of life. So actually start with chapter 9, verse 18, where it says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So that's the proverb. That's the maxim that he's giving us here. Then he illustrates it in chapter 9, verse 1. So if you didn't get the proverb, uh, the illustration should explain it to you. It says, Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. He is now demonstrating here uh, a thing that it doesn't take much foolishness or sin or folly or insanity, as he said in chapter 9, verse 3, to negate a lot of good things. Just a little foolishness can destroy a lot of good things. So he gives the illustration of a fly and a perfumer's oil. Let's take that down to where we might live. We're, we're sitting on our back porch uh, when good weather comes. We're already looking forward to that. But don't get anxious. It's a ways off. But um, we're, we're sitting on our back porch with a glass of iced tea or a cup of coffee. And we're enjoying what we're enjoying. And then buzz in, buzzes in a fly. Lands right in our cup of coffee or iced tea. Now, what do most of you, us sophisticated humans do? Uh, we throw it away. I'm not going to drink that stuff. Now, by weight, by volume, uh, the, the iced tea or the coffee far outweighs the fly. There's a lot more volume of, of drink than there is fly, right? But we're too sophisticated to do that, so we're going to throw it away because a little uh, impurity destroys much good. And that's the illustration that he's using here. One sin can destroy much good. A church is going along quite well, and then some ugly sin pops up in that church, and the church goes into a tailspin. In your own personal life, you're building a testimony for the Lord and a reputation, perhaps, at work. And one foolish act can undermine all that you tried to do for 20 or 30 years. One offhand comment can actually destroy your career or your testimony. Uh, we, we ran into that, co that uh, concept and idea of being canceled here the last couple of three years. That, that wasn't something many of us ever thought about before. It's part of our vocabulary now. People who have uh, lived life, doing well, very good careers, climbing the ladder, one offhand remark, and the next thing you know, they're canceled. And their life is, is going downhill as a result of that. And so he's saying that, that's what can happen. Just one little piece of folly can destroy much good. Verses 2 and 3, he kind of uh, shows how important it is to live consistently wise then. He says, a wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. So how important is it to live consistently wise lives? The heart of the wise then will protect us from foolishness as it inclines us to the right or the right pathway of living. Wizard from the wisdom of God, then we're, then we're starting to live out a testimony of foolishness instead of wisdom. We're leaving the very pathway that God wants us to go. So in verses 1 and 2 he said, he's warning us about the danger of just one little thing that can, that can truncate so many other things, that can ruin so many other things in our lives. And then he says, wisdom is given to us to protect us from that. So that we don't go down that pathway. So we, we don't suffer the consequences of those choices and that kind of lifestyle. You know, a Christian in sin 
in some ways is, is worse off than an unbeliever in sin. But Christian will do the dumbest things. They, they will do things that undermine their lives. They'll do things that destroy their, their testimony. They'll do things that, that they'll leave their friends. They'll leave behind their church that they love. They will, they will destroy their marriages and harm their children, with, sometimes without even meaning to do so, because sin begins to dominate their lives. Once in a while I see a picture, some of you post pictures on our, our network, and, or, I, or we're going through a drawer and we see pictures from the past or something like that. And, and I look, pictures are made to remind us of the past, right? To bring up memories and so forth. So I love to see a lot of those pictures from 10, 20, 30 years ago and see a different, different ones that we know and love. At the same time, there's often a sadness that I look at those pictures because I see people that once walked with the Lord that no longer do. And it always breaks my heart. It always gives me a sadness. And, and, and another thing is, is looking at pictures that are out there sometimes about kids that were in vacation Bible school or Sunday school classes or whatever. And here's a row of 12 kids and half of them are no longer walking with the Lord. They're, they're, and we tried so hard, you know. Our teachers, our Sunday school teachers, our VBS workers, our, our people here tried so, so hard to raise them up for the ways of God. And yet many of them chose the way of foolishness. Uh, and, and, and in those cases, many of their families are the same way. Not always, but often the, they have Christian families trying to direct them in the ways of God. And yet they grow up and they have left the pathway of righteousness, the pathway of right. And they're walking down the pathway of foolishness. And if that doesn't break your heart, I don't know what does. Because it breaks my heart on a regular basis to even consider what happened that those young people, those children went away that way. Now, I will guarantee you, not a one of them said to myself one day, I think I'll grow up to be a fool. I think what I want to be is stupid. I think what I want to do is waste my life. I think I want to just, just go on a treadmill and just live stupidly. Nobody says that. And yet many people do that. Uh, and why do they do that? Well, a lot of reasons, I guess, but one reason is we slowly but surely compromise in this area of wisdom and purity. When I was about 21 years old, I was a camp counselor at a, a camp in Wisconsin uh, for a whole summer, and uh, part of the camping experience every week was wilderness camping. So we would go out for a couple days or so every week, and we would camp out, and we would live in, in primitive conditions and all that went with that. And it seemed like in Wisconsin that summer, it rained every stinking day. I mean, it was, bugs were everywhere. I, it was, it was, I'd never wanted to go to Wisconsin ever, ever again. And then some years ago, I went to Alaska, and it was even worse. Uh, if, if you think, uh, I'm, I'm off track, I'm sorry. But if you think... Wisconsin and up there is bad for, for mosquitoes, go to Alaska. It's, they're, they, they're not bigger, they're just more of them. And they are, they're lethal. I, I, was, I was putting on this DEET stuff, you know, it keeps you off, the mosquito stuff, and uh, I found that the mosquitoes would hold out about a foot from my head and just buzz, but they wouldn't touch me. And then I noticed later on, I read the package that I was using, it says, do not apply this to your skin. All right, well, I didn't die, you know, I might have got sucked dry by mosquitoes if I didn't do it, I don't know. I did notice I shouldn't have done that, but nevertheless, I have no idea what I'm talking about, except when I, when I was in Wisconsin doing this wilderness stuff, I would, and we were getting hot and cold, really, it always rained, it was cold, 
We sat by the fire at night and have a hot, uh, uh, some hot chocolate or in the afternoon and rest a little bit. And I'd have my drink and a, a fly or a bug or a bee would land in it. Well, maybe the first time or two I threw it away. But after a while, this is my hot chocolate. This is all I got. And I began to fish it out. I, you, you could drop a small bird in there. And, and I'd just fish it out. I mean, I, I'm going to drink my hot chocolate. Now, that wasn't very sophisticated, but I got used to it. And as far as I know, again, it hasn't killed me. I got a pretty good immune system. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But, but nevertheless, I got used to it, and so I, I did it. Us sophisticated people today, we wouldn't do that, would we? I probably wouldn't do it now, but I got used to it then. So I, I use that very long and truncated and weird <laughs> illustration to say this. Look, it is very easy. Matter of fact, it's very natural for us to ever so slowly compromise and accept things we wouldn't have dreamed would have done in the past. As we enter a new year, take a good look at your life. Are you progressing in the Lord? Are you walking with the Lord in more intensity and, and more maturity than you were last year? If not, you're going backwards, folks. Don't, don't just say, well, you know, I've had a rough patch here, I've been busy, this, that, or the other. You're in, a, you're in a bad position. You're beginning to compromise and accept things that you shouldn't accept, and you're in a wrong position. No one becomes foolish. No Christian. We're born in foolishness. But no Christian becomes foolish overnight. They become foolish by accepting the impurities of life, step by step by step, and walking away from the way of wisdom. And that's what Solomon wants to teach us here. Well, here's the second advantage, and that is that we will develop patience in an unfair world. Patience in an unfair world. Look at verse 4. If the ruler... Ruler's temper rises against you. Do not abandon your position because composure allies, allies very great offenses. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Solomon is returning to a subject he hits often. The unfairness, unfair, unfairness and injustices of life. He, he goes back to this time and time again. This seems to be a, a definitely, definitely something that puzzles him and confuses him. Why is it that life is so unfair? Well, why, and he didn't like it. And he constantly returns to that theme. And I think the reason is most of us believe down in our hearts that life should be fair. Right? I mean, we will say we don't believe that, but, but if we deserve a certain salary or a certain position or a certain promotion, we ought to get it. And if we don't get it, then that's unfair. And we're disappointed and we're disillusioned and we might even be angry. Uh, most parents uh, to have to teach their children this, right? So you parents who have children, raising children or have raised children, especially if you've done more than one kid, you know, you, you got the two siblings together, and they are arguing about something. And you come along, and you settle the argument, and you choose for one kid. And the other kid cream, screams out, that's not fair. Okay, now when you're a young parent, just starting out, uh, you might sit down for a bit and explain philosophically why it was fair. You might line out all the six arguments in a poem as to why this was fair. But after you had a couple kids or three, and you've been doing this for a while, you're tired. You're not going to sit down and do all the philosophy. And so you look at the kid and says, life is not fair. Get over it. Right? I'm sure most of you kind people don't do that, right? 
I bet most of you do. But anyway, uh, but down deep in our own hearts, we believe life ought to be fair. Uh, it's, uh, and it seldom is. We, we, we look around, we see promotions given to people at work that don't deserve them, but they're buddies with the boss. Uh, we, we see uh, people in campaigns, uh, political people, who, uh, who uh, uh, go up the ladder or hire, or hire people for their positions based upon how they've supported the campaign or given them money rather than because they deserve it. This can be multiplied over and over. Uh, life is often not fair and we don't like it. So the, how does a wise person handle the unfairness of life? We'll drop back to verse 4 again. He says, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. He's not saying just to be passive and do nothing about it. But what he thinks he is, I think he's saying is, is be, be calm under fire. Don't panic. Uh, don't, uh, don't lose it over the unfairness of life. More importantly, folks, as we think about this, remember that the world is watching. Your children are watching. Your friends are watching your life. Are you and I, when we face the unfairness of life, and we face it all the time, are you and I reacting any differently than those around us in the world react to such things? Are we just as big a complainer? Do we have just as bad of attitude? Uh, are we just behaving just like the foolish people of the world behave? Or is or, or the world and people around us seeing something different about us who walk in wisdom those of us who knew, know Christ, that they're not seen in other cases. And the reason why we can do that, or should do that, is if we're walking in wisdom, we have a different perspective on life than everyone else around us has. And so that perspective makes all the difference. Some of you uh, may have heard of G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan was the... the uh, most celebrated preacher of his generation, late 1800s, uh, going, going into the 1900s after World War II. He was the most celebrated preacher of his generation. He was considered the very best of the very best. When he was young and just beginning his ministry, he tried to become part of the Methodist denomination back in the late 1800s when it was still quite conservative. And in order to become a part of the, of the denomination, he had to do a trial sermon. So he had been preaching before, doing pretty good, but he went and preached his trial sermon before a congregation, and he bombed. It was a horrible sermon. And the denomination turned him out. They rejected him from being, being part of their group because he was too bad of a preacher. It's ironic to become the greatest preacher of his generation that at that point he was rejected. His father wanted to encourage him and give him perspective. And so he sent him a telegraph. Remember, this is back in the 1800s. And the telegraph simply said this, rejected on earth, stop, accepted in heaven. His father saw that his son was disappointed and hurt. He had been rejected by men, but he was not rejected by God. He was accepted by God. Which is more important? What, what, what perspective do we have here that no matter what happens in life, to be right before God is infinitely better. That doesn't mean we lay back and do nothing, and certainly G. Campbell Morgan did not do that. But he had the perspective of, of whatever, what really mattered was to be right before God himself, and he was accepted. Here's his third advantage. We recognize the challenge of uncertainty 
And we look at verses 8 through 11, and he says this, He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does, uh, does not sharpen his edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If a serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. Now this is kind of seems to be a slit, just a, a, a string of Proverbs, but he's making a point here. If the last section we looked at, the key word is perspective in the unfairness of life. The key word here is uncertainty in living in a world when we don't know what's going to happen next. And we don't. We don't know what's going to happen next. In chapter 9, verse 11, he had talked about this before. Look at that verse. I, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors. Neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. We looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago, but, but the point is this. We don't know what's going to happen next. How do we live wisely in a world of uncertainty in which we simply don't know what is coming? How are we supposed to, to live that way? Scripture never guarantees, by the way, nor, not here, not anywhere else, that if we live wisely, we will always be successful and prosperous and things will go well. He's not teaching that. He's not saying that. But he is saying in verse 10, at the end, he says this, Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. What does he mean then by that? I, I think he means that even though there is no guarantee of success if you walk wisely, there is the, po the greater possibility of it because we're walking in wisdom. Now what does that mean? Well, let me, let me say it two different ways. We have an advantage as Christians. If you're a Christian and you know God's word and you're walking in wisdom, as he's talking about here, you have the ad great advantage of knowing what life is all about. The unbeliever has no clue, honestly. They have no clue that this world is made for the honor and glory of God. They have no clue of God's next steps and his, his program for the future. They have no clue about the purpose of living on this planet. They have no clue. You do. And the more we grow in wisdom, the more we understand that. The more we understand the purpose of life and how we fit into that purpose of life. That's why wisdom is so valuable and so important. Here's another thing that gives us an advantage here, and that is that we understand human nature. Once again, the world has no clue. One of the errors, of probably the fundamental error of modern psychology and, and, and psychiatry today is its anthropology, its view of humanity. The, the, the psychological world, which has infiltrated all of America, uh, many books by unbelievers are being written today about the therapeutic... Uh, culture we live in today. But the nature of humanity, according to this philosophy, is that people are good by nature, or at least neutral. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that we are dead in our sins. Our, our intellect is darkened by the foolishness of sin. We walk in darkness. We live in darkness. We'll go to darkness. Uh, human humanity is has blinders on their eyes and they don't understand they don't even see their own selves scripture teaches that we're dead in sin and we need the righteousness of Christ to change that and so we have great advantages in life and even the most practical areas because we understand human nature 
and we understand the purpose of life and the God who controls this life. So when he says wisdom has the advantage of giving success, I believe that's the kind of thing that he has in mind. So we are able then to take to step out in the uncertainties of life and live wisely and take, a, take chances and not worry about failure. Because we will fail at times, but nevertheless, what really matters is that we're walking the way he wants us to walk. Now let's, let's look at the fourth when it kind of goes to the next step. The fourth advantage is we'll learn how to control our tongue. In verse 12 he says this, words for the mouth of a wise, uh, from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words, no man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him. Notice he's talking here about words. Uh, the tongue, uh, there's few things in life we have more problems with than our tongue. And the book of James makes that real clear. The last component of our nature, or our, of our body, that seems to be tamed is our tongue. We tend to say the strangest and most awful things at times. James reminds us of that. A Greek sage said this, I have often regretted my speech, never my silence. That's worth considering. But more important than that, not only James and other scriptures, but Jesus himself told us that, that the tongue, what, what we say reveals what's in our hearts. The very essence of what our, our speech is comes from our hearts themselves. Our tongues are a window into our hearts. And it tells the world what we're really like. So the wise man with his tongue, the wise person, what does he do? Verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. In some ways you can tell the nature of your own wisdom or foolishness by what you say. The words of a wise person are, are habitually gracious. Certainly they trip up sometimes too because the tongue is hard to tame. But by, by nature, by, by habit, that such a person is speaking with graciousness. Uh, they're kind. They're not looking to be critical and mean-spirited. They're trying to look for things that are, that are good and positive, and they speak that way. That's the words that come out of the wise man's or woman's mouth. For the foolish person is just the opposite. And he says here, as he goes on, uh, verse 12, he says, With the lips of a fool, uh, while, while the lips of a fool consume him, <laughs> that the words of a, of a fool destroy him, and the beginning of his talking is folly, at the end is wicked madness. <laughs> it's craziness, what people will say and do, he says. You know, uh, we need to be very careful what we say, and whether we have something worth saying. Someone pointed out to me years ago, that when you hear a semi going through the streets, and the ones that are making lots of noise, the, you know, the, the back the bed of the, of, the, of the trailer is making noise. Those are the ones that are empty. The ones that are full don't make that kind of noise because they're weighted down. And the parable of that, the, the, the point of that, is that those who have so little to say or worth saying tend to do a, make a lot of noise. That's foolishness. We ought to be sure that we have something worth saying and we say it in gracious ways. Someone has said how, uh, how an empty head and a twisted heart and a full, mouth, a full mouth wearies God. And I think that's true. Jesus says that you can tell what's going on in our hearts by what's coming out of our mouths. 
Someone went to John Wesley one time and said to John Wesley, they said, said Wesley, I, I pride myself in speaking my mind. It is my talent. And John Wesley said, I don't think the Lord would mind if you buried that talent. <laughs> Worth considering. Number five. Now, here, we've seen four advantages so far. Uh, the advantage of godly wisdom was we're going to travel on the right path. We'll develop patience and perspective in an unfair world. We will recognize the challenge of uncertainty and, and deal with it properly. And we'll control our tongue. Here's the fifth one. We will learn how to handle those in authority over us. We'll learn how to handle those in authority over us. Verse 16 says this. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, whose princes feast in the morning. So he starts off by talking about a, the, the government over us. And this is applicable to us in a, in a secondhand way. We're not under the, the monarchies of the past, but we understand authority. Authority in government, authority in the home, authority in business world. We, so I think it's applicable to that. And he says, woe to you if you have leaders over you who are like this. Uh, the king is a lad. He doesn't know much. They, they feast in the morning. They're, just, they, they're not doing anything right. They're just having a good time. Uh, such a situation is, uh, is bad. And we know that. I mean, any conversation you have with almost anybody about government, uh, you'll find people frustrated at times, right? I mean, we, we get tired of the ineptness, the, the lack of concern, the laziness of those in government, the, 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 the various things that, that just aggravate us so much. If you don't believe that, try to call the IRS this week, you know, or Social Security, or try to get your driver's license on a busy time. You, we, we all get gripey about that because we think things ought to be running better. Verse 17, though, let's be fair. Verse 17, not, it's not always like that, and not everybody is like that. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is a, of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. When we... While much of government is kind of messed up at times, much of the things government does are wonderful. We just, we just get used to them. We get used to roads that actually don't have gigantic holes in them. And we, we get used to, to the things that, that happen that, that are helpful to us where we need it all. We get used to a defense system that takes care of us. We get used to these things, and we don't appreciate them. So he says, look... Uh, in verse 17, you're fortunate if you, have, if you see those doing a good job and if government's doing a good job. Appreciate that as much as you possibly can because that is a good thing. But he, tur he turns back to verse 18 to talk about those who are not doing so well. And so the rest of this passage, verses 18 to 20, is talking about those who are not doing well. He says in verse 18, Through insolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. And so because of slothfulness, because of carelessness, because people don't really care about what they're doing, there's all sorts of problems. Just as last week, we discovered a leak in our living room ceiling, and uh, it was very, very disconcerting because our roof isn't that old. So we called the uh, roofer, the guy who put the roof on, and uh, actually called the wrong number. We called uh, another guy by the same name and found out the guy that put our roof on is dead. I don't know if he fell off a roof, but he's, he is dead. And when he did our roof, uh, he brought in about 20 people, and we found out from this new guy that he just went down to the taverns or wherever and hired people for the day, and a lot of them didn't know what they were doing. And so he goes up on my roof, he said, yeah, that's, that's what you got all sorts of places here that they didn't nail it down properly. So I've got a relatively new roof that leaks, because whoever put it on just 
took people that didn't know what they were doing, didn't care about what they were doing, and didn't do a good job. That's aggravating, isn't it? Sure aggravating for me. That probably doesn't bother you much today, but it bothered me quite a bit. But he's saying, look, this, that's not good. In verse 8, 19 he goes on, but this is a very misunderstood verse. So look at this verse carefully. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Now some people have jumped on that verse and said, ha-ha, I told you so. Drinking as much as possible is a great thing to do. And money will solve every problem. There's one major problem with that right off the bat. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible. It's just the opposite from the beginning to the end. Money doesn't solve every problem. It could solve some problems, but it causes a lot of other problems as well. So what could he possibly be saying here? He's saying, look, this is the attitude of bad leadership. They think partying is fun. Let's just have a good time to worry about the real issues. They think money, throwing money at something, solves everything. We haven't seen that in America, have we? Hardly ever happens. But that is, that's, a, that's an attitude of, of poor government. And so he's, he's showing that. So with that in mind, what should we do? I mean, we can't solve all this. So what should we do? Look at verse 20. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creatures will make the matter known. So here he says this, be very careful that you show respect to leadership, because if you don't, it could very well get you in big trouble. Now, thinking about that for a moment, he's not saying that we shouldn't speak up, step up, do the things that we can do to protest something that's wrong. We certainly can do that. We have the right in America to do that in an, in an honorable way. But he says, be very careful, weigh out the consequences, because that can really turn on you. But the New Testament, which we won't go to right now, but I'll, I'll point you that direction. The New Testament takes us much further. In Romans chapter 13, for example, we're told to honor and respect those who are in authority over us. And he's talking about a godless government under Nero in the Roman Empire. And he's saying we are to honor and respect those in that position because God has allowed them and put them in that position for his own purposes, which we may not understand. And so in the, in the light of difficult and bad government sometimes, we are to honor and respect those over us, even if we don't agree with them, do what we can to change it, but honor and respect those in authority. And we don't do that well, folks. Uh, we Christians are just as bad as others sometimes about that. I, during the Christmas holiday, somebody put out a, a uh, thing, I think it was Babylon B, who's always sarcastic and often funny, sometimes not so funny. But they put out a parody about Biden that uh, was went along the lines of, of Mary Did You Know song. Some of you might have seen this. It's Biden Did You Know. And uh, the song was well done, well sung, well produced. And the guy went on singing for a long time about Biden, did you know, and pointed out all sorts of horrible things about President Biden. And as I was list listening to it at first, it was funny, and I, I was giggling along with it. But as it went, got deeper and deeper into it, it was very caustic, very ugly, very sarcastic, very mean-spirited. And as I, as I thought about that and, and listened to it longer, I thought, how could this possibly be honoring our, our president of the of United States? Yes, we have differences, most of us, with him. Yes, some of those things we want to change. Yes, we believe he's wrong in some areas. But what about Romans 13? Are we to honor such a person and respect them for their position? I think so. 
Uh, I know there's been whole books written in the last two years why we shouldn't do that. Just read one recently, 600-page book. A part of it, very small part of it, said that Romans 13 is not about honoring government. Romans 13, Paul said basically that if they had the power, the Christians would have overthrown the government. I don't know where you're going to find that in Romans 13, but this guy found it there. Don't, don't play fast and loose with Scripture. Honor the leadership above us, even when we don't agree. Now, point six, bonus, bonus point. Okay, five, number six, here it is. And as, he, as we go into chapter 11, he's going to deal now with, with the advantages of that wisdom gives us and just a myriad of ways of everyday life. Uh, just different things. He kind of throws it out there. Verses 1 through 8 gives us some practical pieces of advice. Number one, diversify your efforts. Diversify your efforts. This is the strongest verses, the best verses in scriptures for an investor. If you are an investor or think you're an investor, pay close attention to these two verses. It might save you a lot of problems. Verse 1 says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Let me tell you about some people in the crypto market who put all their money into one thing because the world says it's going to a million dollars a coin and we've got to put it all there so we can all be billionaires. Guess what? Lots and lots of people lost their life savings. Why? They didn't follow the wise principle right here. Diversify. Maybe if you want to throw some money that way, Personally, I think you're in a Ponzi scheme, but that's my opinion. Uh, if you want to throw some money that way, then do it, but don't do much. You've got eight different other investments to diversify with. Be careful with that. The uh, 16th century philosopher took this verse and said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So if you like eggs better than this, uh, you can remember that. Secondly, don't be afraid to fail. In verse 3, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. He's looking here at a person now who's just looking around at the weather, looking around at the circumstances of life, and they don't go out and get the job done because they're afraid it might rain or it might snow or the wind might be too hard, and so they sit around waiting for things to be right. Well, folks... Uh, too many people are simply afraid that something might not go well and so they, they're afraid to fail. And so they're paralyzed by, by the fear of failure. When I was going to college, I had a friend who was absolutely brilliant, in my opinion. He could out-argue almost anybody. But you set him down to, to write a term paper. He would sit before his keyboard and get totally paralyzed that he might write down the wrong thing. Me and a friend of mine would go away for supper, come back two hours later, come back, and he hadn't written but one word, the. That was it. And his whole, whole paper. Why? He was, and we'd say to him, just write something. Well, it could be wrong. Don't, don't worry about it being wrong. Do something. Well, this is kind of the idea here. These people are afraid to do anything because who knows? The wind might come up. And so they sit around looking at the weather instead of stepping up and doing what they all to do. Someone has said, every great improvement has come after repeated failures. Virtually nothing comes out right the first time. Failures, repeated failures, are the finger post on the road to achievement. So the wise person realized they're not always going to succeed. They can't sit around waiting for all the circumstances to be right. They step up 
and do what they have to do. Third, third here is don't, you don't have to understand everything to, to do well. You don't have to know it all. Verse, verse 5, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Uh, now we know more than the ancient people did about birth in the womb and, and, and formation in the womb, but we still don't know it all. I mean, scientists really cannot tell you to this day, and never will, in my opinion, be able to tell you why does life happen? Why does, why does this form take life? Why, why does that happen? We can give the biology, but can we give the spirit? No. We don't know it all. But that doesn't stop people from having children. Right? You don't have to know everything in order to have the children. Number four, do your best. Verse six, sow your seed in the morning and do not, lie, do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Uh, don't just sit around waiting for the Lord to do something and give you guarantees. He's not going to do that. Just step up. Step up. Do the best you can with what you know. Uh, I hear of too many Christians. I talk to too many Christians who say, well, I want to do such and such, but uh, I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me what to do. You're going to wait a long time, folks. He's not going to come across the sky and give you a banner. Thou shalt do this. If you're waiting for some mystical experience, you're going to be very disappointed. Uh, I, I, I know if people say, well, I want to go to college, but I don't know where I want to go. I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me. In the meanwhile, why don't you look up some websites and uh, see how much they cost and what kind of courses they offer and, and so forth. I, I hear of others who say, I'd like to be married someday, but uh, I'm waiting for the Lord to bring the person to my life. Well, why don't you get out of the house and get around some people that might be good choices? You know, I don't think that's an ungodly choice at all. That's a wise choice. Well, don't sit around waiting. Do the best that you can. You don't know what's going to happen. Verse, verse 7 and 8, he goes now to a subject he's hit many times. Enjoy life. The light is pleasant. It's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything that is to come will be fruitful. Now, he's going to get, he's talked about that before. He, we know that much of life will be darkness. There will be hard times that comes into every, everybody's life. But he's saying here that, that we, are, that we are, can enjoy life even in the midst of all of that. He calls us to do that about seven or eight times in this book. Enjoy what God has given you. That's the way of wisdom, even in difficult times. I was reading just this week a, a little booklet and a quote by Andrew Murray, who was a, from another generation, a devotional type writer, and he was going through a very difficult time in his life, a great trial in his life. And he's explaining here his attitude toward that, and I thought it was worth reading his few lines to you. He says, first he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. God brought him there. He would rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me the grace to behave as his child. Thirdly, then, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends for me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And then last, in his good time, he can bring me out again how and when he knows. That's wisdom, folks. That's wisdom. Because we're all going to be in dark places. We don't know how that's going to turn out. But he knows. So we don't know the details, but we know one who does know the details. That's wisdom. 
So it's quite obvious that the Lord wants us to live life to the fullest, but the life to the fullest is lived in wisdom. And as he talks about that, the, the foolish way of living, the living the way that the world naturally lives, is always a dead-end street. It might pay short-term dividends, but it never pays long-term or eternal dividends. This passage now, we have to be careful when we read sections like this, the wisdom literature. He's not just giving us platitudes, not just wise sayings. That would be helpful and could help numbers of lives today. I hope it did. But it's more than that. Wisdom is found only in Christ and only in his word. It is a wisdom from above. It's a wisdom that transforms lives. It's not just human proverbs. It's wisdom infused by the truth of God. That's what we turn to. A young lady was writing a book, and she was writing about an experience in her youth when she woke up one day and looked at the bathroom wall in her house, and there was a crack that was going right up the side from the, from the corner of the, of, the, of the door all the way up to the ceiling. She told her dad. Her dad got a painter over. He plastered over it, painted over it. About two weeks later, the crack was back, and it brought a bunch of buddies with him. And so they called in another person who did the same thing, but said, this is never going to stop. Your problem is not in the crack. That's a symptom. The problem is in your foundation. Your house is shifting, and as a result of that, you're having these cracks. That would be applicable to what we're saying here, folks. It's not enough to patch over some bad choices in life and live more wisely. We have to go to the very roots. We have to go to the very foundation. Do you know Christ, the epitome of wisdom? Do you, do you understand his word and growing in that knowledge that gives us a foundation of everyday living for Jesus Christ? That's the foundation. Until the foundation is examined and corrected, everything else is just patchwork. Let's live in wisdom. And Solomon has given us some great insights. Father, thank you now for this passage of Scripture, what it's taught us today. I hope it's helpful in a practical way, but also more foundational, that it draws us back, it points us back to you yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.